everyone, Terry Welbrock here. Just a quick little intro before today's very, wow, empowering episode. want to talk about one in just a few days. On January 25th, I have a book launch happening. So you can go pre-order your copy of The Caregiver Chronicles uh, on Amazon. And I'll put link a link for it in show notes. It's uh, There's a number of books out there titled that way. But if you go and look at, uh, or when you go to Amazon and search Care, The Caregiver Chronicles and put in uh, Madness to Magic is the publisher. I wrote chapter 21 and the reviews are starting to roll in from folks who have read the manuscript before launch. And oh my gosh, just a, such amazing reviews. And... So exciting. It has already hit number one in two categories in elder care and in parent and adult child relationships. So yay. Um, yeah, that's pretty exciting stuff to already be a number one best-selling author. Uh, the other thing is that I wanted to talk about was that I am working on audiobooks number seven and eight. So if you go to Audible and type in my name, Terry Welbrock. T-E-R-I-W-E-L-L-B-R-O-C-K. You can find all of the audiobooks that I have narrated and produced so far, which are some amazing books. And um, keep an eye out for the two that I'm working on currently. And then I'll continue to, to connect with authors and put out inspirational books. I took a little two-month break from the show from recording and uh producing any episodes. And it's just so nice to be back. And already the download numbers are climbing, which is another thing to celebrate. So excited about that. So my request to you is to please share your favorite episodes with folks or just the whole podcast in general. Yeah, share it on your social media or invite folks or send them via text or email and say, hey, check out the show. Because we never know who's been through trauma or who's struggling, um, whether it be depression or anxiety or any sort of difficulty in their life. Um, today's episode certainly speaks to, to what people are going through and how so many times others can just walk on by. Also, in the middle of today's episode, uh, I have another conversation with Scott Summers here on Hilton Head Island, where I live, and uh, he is my mentor. I am back licensed in the life insurance arena. I was a licensed agent in Ohio back in the day, and now I'm licensed here in South Carolina and super, super excited about that. So many wonderful products. So yes, reach out to me. If you go to terrywellbrock.com, my website, there is a tab, request a quote and complete that and we can chat on the phone uh, and just have a little conversation about what your needs are and uh, if I have anything that uh, can help you out with your needs. So um, let's talk. All right. Now for today's episode. Welcome everybody to the Healing Place podcast. I'm your host, Terry Welbrock, and my heart is just so very happy today to be, ah, as I throw my glasses, I got so excited. I was throwing my stuff around. Uh, to have joined me today, we met through Podmatch, and uh, yes, yeah, so Amanda Blackwood, she is joining us. She is an accomplished artist and author, public speaker, podcast host, trauma recovery mentor, and a survivor of human trafficking. So, welcome! Thank you so much, and thank you for having me, Terry. This means a lot to me. Oh, absolutely! I again, I I just feel so very blessed to have uh, beautiful souls such as yourself who have not only survived, but then thrived uh, after trauma and then doing this amazing healing work and, and really taking people by the hand and guiding others along their, their healing journey. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. So gosh, there's so many things that I could like ask you about. I, I had all the questions underlined, but one of the things that I think I, I think it would be great to start with uh, is myths and truths. And, and one of the things you talk about is, is the media um, when it comes to hu um, human trafficking. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So one of the biggest misconceptions is what trafficking looks like. 
you know, if you mention human trafficking here in the U.S., most people either picture people being prostituted or they picture young children being snatched off the street by total strangers driving windowless vans. In reality, while 90% of women in prostitution are being trafficked, that is not what the majority of human trafficking looks like. And kidnapping cases take up 1% to 2% of all victims of human trafficking. So most people are trafficked by people who have a sense of authority over their lives, like parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles. These are all very common. It's also very common to have husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends. And a lot of people think it only happens to women. And that's because the the females are going to be a little bit more open to talking about what's happened to them. Men are taught that it's not okay to talk about trauma. In reality, 46% of all victims are men or boys. That's a huge number. So let's break it down to the very basics. When I tell people about human trafficking, I always tell them, make sure that you're not looking this up on Wikipedia or Google, because these are fallible resources. They're getting lots of information from lots of different places, including places that get it wrong. So you want to go somewhere that's going to be a reputable source. For me, I prefer to go to the Department of Homeland Security. Their definition uh, specifically states that human trafficking is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or commercial sex acts from another person. So if you notice, there's no mention of actual money. Commercial sex acts does not mean money. So prostitution is not the same as human trafficking in all cases. There's no mention of transportation, even though in our minds we think of trafficking as being the same as traffic, as being in traffic. Human smuggling and human trafficking are two separate issues that often overlap, just like prostitution, but need to be clearly defined as separate issues and need to be addressed separately also. And there's no mention of age. So when we're thinking about human trafficking and we're automatically thinking it's only happening to these young kids, um, no, absolutely not. The oldest person here in recent years in the state of Colorado to be pulled out of trafficking was in her 70s. The youngest was three months old. Oh, there's a massive age gap. So when it comes down to what it is that's being portrayed in the media, let's take, for example, there's a movie that came out recently. They are sensationalizing that small percentage of 1% to 2% of all cases by starting it out and telling the story of kidnapped victims. Um, When that happens, a lot of actual victims of human trafficking are then uh, slandered and told that they're liars and that their stories don't matter because it doesn't look like what they've been told it looks like, especially if the trafficking happens over the age of 18. There are so many myths and so many problems with this. I was attacked on social media recently because my story did not look like that movie. But that movie, the organization that they're talking about, split with the man who wrote the movie. And the movie is more about him than it is about trafficking in the first place. Uh, When they split, they came out and openly said, this is not what trafficking typically looks like. And people are still ignoring that message. When you see where there has been a prostitution sting, Uh, and you read the headlines where 162 people were arrested in a prostitution or human trafficking, you have to wonder who those numbers are. Because I guarantee you, those aren't the traffickers. Those aren't the bad guys. They're arresting the guys who are purchasing sex, which here in the U.S., the fine for doing so is approximately $80 to $120 per offense, depending on which state you live in. That's a slap on the wrist. Right. That's a fine and you're out the door. So the other numbers that they that you're seeing there are the victims of human trafficking. They are being arrested for selling sex. Then they are re- receiving a rap sheet and a record. They are further victimized by the police who are not listening to them when they say I'm in a bad situation and I don't have a choice. And then they're being bailed out by the people who are trafficking them in most cases. And then they are now in further debt bondage. Now they owe more money to this person. They're in further indebted to them personally, emotionally, monetarily. These numbers are hugely inflated. 
we need to stop sensationalizing these great big busts because all they're doing is taking a bad situation and making it so much worse. So what, what's the solution? What, gosh, I'm just so, I've learned so much in these past four or five minutes. Holy moly. Again, I'm just kind of stuck here in silence because I'm trying to process all of that. But wow, does that make a lot of sense? It's a lot too. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So the best way to start to really change things is to go to the very root of the problem. Get out the shovels, dig deep. Um, This is going to be a tough one. (laughs) As long as these people who are purchasing sex from minors are getting fines of $80 to $120 per offense, nothing is going to change. They have to change these laws. The only way we're going to change these laws is by banding together, getting the vote out there, lobbying Congress, and really making an actual change in the world. People have been crying out for years now. They need to release the Epstein names. Why? If it's not going to do anything to them, except give them a fine that they can easily brush under the carpet, why? Then all we're going to get is a bunch of vigilante justice. And we don't need that either. Yeah, I heard it recently said that the justice isn't for the victim. The justice is for the observer. The victim already got justice. They got out. We, If we really want justice, we need to seek it the way that it is legally right to do so. We need to change the laws. And we need to start at the very bottom and work our way up. And how do you push a big boulder up a mountain? With more than two hands. Yeah. Wow. Well, again, I'm I'm so blown away by everything you've said. Things I just had never thought about before. Um, yeah. And was unaware. So thank you for <laughs> enlightening me. Um, yeah. So now do you share your personal story? I do. I do it frequently. I talk on stages and stuff and I get interviewed on radio programs and podcasts. And Awesome. Do you mind sharing with, with us? Sure. Um, so as with most survivors of human trafficking, we usually grow up in rather abusive households. Um, I was no stranger to that myself. I was molested for the first time as far as I can remember when I was four. My mother was mentally and emotionally abusive. My father was physically abusive. And my brother was only three years older than me, but he was my first molester. It happened repeatedly again, starting when I was a preteen at 12, 13, 15, 16. I was raped at 17 by somebody I thought was my best friend. And at the time, I didn't recognize it as being rape because um, I was very quiet when I said no, because I was crying. And I was afraid to be heard because I was afraid of being hurt. Things had been happening so often in my life at that point. I didn't feel like I had the ability or the strength or the right to say no. People were taking slices of what slices of my soul, whether I was going to let them to or not. So by the time I was 18, I was a teenage runaway for years. I ended up dating a man who was more than twice my age. And he was the first person who trafficked me. I was living in Arizona at the time. He, I didn't realize at the time, but he had ties to organized crime and was a drug dealer. He also had a legitimate job on the side to be able to pay for the rent and stuff and to make things look legitimate. So that's what I thought he did. And he, I guess, owed money to somebody. And I was the compensation He loaned me out for a birthday weekend in Las Vegas, Nevada, and gave my my ID card to this man. And they they took me to the airport. And the way it was presented to me was I was going to get an all expenses paid trip to Vegas. And at 18, I knew I couldn't gamble. I wasn't interested in gambling anyway. I wanted to ride the roller coaster at the top of New York, New York. I had ridden it before. I loved it. I couldn't wait to do it again. And instead, we got all the way there. He kept a hold of my ID, so I couldn't really do much of anything. And he paid the front desk staff at the Hard Rock Hotel there in Las Vegas. It's now gone. 
um, paid them money to not ask any questions. They did exactly as they were told. He advised them that they were allowed to bring me room service only once a day. They were to drop it off outside the door and to leave before I opened the door um, so that there was obviously a disconnect and I couldn't ask for help. I didn't have a room key. So if I left, I wouldn't have been able to get back in. Um, he still had my my ID card. I had no way of getting home except to stick with him and to take the flight back. I didn't have a driver's license at the time. And if I had left that room to go and find police to tell them, what if, what if, just like all those times I ran away from home, they didn't believe me and they didn't care. I was 18. What were they going to do to help me? I wasn't some young child that had been kidnapped. I was an 18 year old young lady who had made the decision to get on the plane to go to Las Vegas. I was terrified to leave the room. So over a 52-hour period, I was repeatedly assaulted. Um, he would come up to the room. He would assault me. He would eat something, and then he would go to sleep. And this happened over and over and over again in a cycle. By the time we left there, I just felt numb to the world. I was terrified. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I got back and I decided that I would rather be homeless than stick around where I was. I was trafficked three different times in my life. That was the first time. And I was only 18 years old. When I left there, I left in a very big hurry. I floated around for a while. I was looking for any kind of direction. And I made my way out to Florida. During a one-year span, I had gotten injured on a horse farm. I fell out of a hayloft and twisted my knee real bad. I needed surgery on my knee. So my plan was to go there and stay with my dad's mother for a little while, my grandmother. I hadn't really spent a whole lot of time with her when I was a kid growing up anyway. I wanted to get to know my grandmother. I was 19 years old and, you know, I'm off in the world and I need knee surgery. I feel like I'm a big kid now. I'm, I'm doing the big kid things. Still not quite an adult. I felt it. And I made my way down to Daytona Beach. I was on the, in the bus station. I had $5 left to my name. I was flat broke. So I really wasn't quite the adult yet. Definitely still a big kid. <laughs> and I called up my grandmother's house so that they would come and get me from the bus stop and I would go and stay with them. And my dad's stepfather answered the phone instead. And when he answered the phone, he told me, we're not coming to get you. You're on your own and good luck. And I had nowhere to go. And I sat down on the curb there in Daytona Beach and I just bawled my eyes out. I was completely without hope. I had no friends. I was in a strange state. I did, apparently didn't have any family that was going to be coming for me. And a young couple came over and found me and he was 22 and she looked 18. But she was 15. And this young couple took me in and said, we have a place for you to stay until you can get on your feet. What they really meant was we have a place for you to stay until we can find the highest bidder. And they sold me as, a, as an item, as a commodity, like a bag of chips or a bed pillow for, I believe it was somewhere around $90 is what my life was worth, my whole life. I was locked up that time for 23 and a half hours with no food, no water, and no bathroom facilities before my um, old training of watching MacGyver as a child growing up really kicked in. <laughs> and I MacGyvered my way out of that room. I don't want to go into too many details because it is in the book, but oh my gosh, that man, I owe my life to Richard Dean Anderson. And I have written to him telling him this, but he's never responded. I just have to trust that he knows. <laughs> I have faith. Wow. So when I got, when I got out of there, I mean, I was 19 years old. I'd just been trafficked twice, had no idea what I went through, had a name, no clue. I left and I went to California because it was as far from Florida as I could get without having a passport. Finally had a driver's license at that point too. Um, <laughs> hey everybody, Terry Welbrock here. Just taking a moment's break to talk to Scott Summers, who's my friend slash neighbor here on Hilton Head Island and senior vice president of Symmetry Financial Group. Uh, and he's 
gosh, the founder, I guess, of uh, the Summers Agency. And I love it that it's the hashtag, the greatest team ever assembled. So very modest. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So Scott's here to talk to us today uh, about, I know this is the Healing Place podcast, but as all of you know, who are listening in uh, for a longtime fan of the show, and for you, those of you who are new, we talk about ways to help ourselves. And this is just such an amazing opportunity for Scott to come on and, and talk about talk about some ways we can not just help ourselves, but help our families. So welcome, Scott. Well, I'm so happy to be here, and um, I really appreciate the partnership. And and wow, be, be, I feel like part of the family. So thanks, oh. thanks for having me here. And you know, speaking of healing, it's you know doing working in the business that I've been in for the last almost almost a decade now. Um, you know, there's there I, you get to see healing of different sorts, right? You know, whether it's um, people recovering from uh, you know some type of significant health issue or losing a family member or um, you know, uh, trying to to correct uh, the debt issue that they have in their family. So uh, we get to help in, in different capacities there with healing. All right. Let's look at, um, oh, one of my favorites. <laughs> I'm so fascinated by this product, product, Scott, and you know, I keep talking about it because I just think it's so, um, just such a great option for folks is debt-free life. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, this is my favorite too, because like, you know, Hey, life insurance is a little grim, you know, we don't want to think about that. That's not something that, you know, Hey, I want to invest in this product because, you know, it's going to pay the family in case I pass away, you know, prematurely, but debt-free life is something that um, really has uh, been, we base it on the infinite bank banking concept and um, we use a participating whole life policy and, you know, people don't realize these products are out there, you know, and what they do is, you know, we, we live in a country really that that's, that really is surviving off of debt. If you look at the, you know, the deficit that we're dealing with and families also, you know, they don't see, um, uh, you know, a light of hope a lot of times when it comes to debt. And it's such a, it's such a emotional um, you know, a burden that people have to deal with, not only financial, but also emo emotional. And, um, you know, people are carrying these days a lot of student debt for years, sometimes decades, people are carrying uh, student debt, people are carrying that mortgage. And, you know, when you look at how much interest that you're paying on a mortgage, for example, when you re really break down the truth in lending on, a, on, and you look at that report on how much debt, you're, uh, how much interest that you're going to pay to back to that lender over the period of 30 years, it's staggering, right? And a lot of times now these days, you know, the average American is retiring with way more debt these days than they were just a decade ago. And so that trend is going to only continue to get worse, you know, I think for the average American. So I love this product because we can actually take debt. And these are for really designed for the, the American that trying is trying to pay everything off sooner. You know, I'm trying, I'm spending a little extra money on my mortgage every month. I'm paying a little bit more towards my credit cards every month. They don't realize that this policy is out there for them. This program is out there for them. And we're taking mortgages, we're paying those off 30 year mortgages in a lot of cases, nine years or less without spending any additional dollars. That's the thing that when, and we take, we take their information, we take, and we show them a roadmap and, and it, you know, you talk about people having like these pent up emotions, these things that they deal with on a daily basis and the relief that they see when they can see that, that, that roadmap and the light at the end of the tunnel, it's really emotional. And we, and we do, we're seeing that every day and more and more uh, families that we're helping uh, on a monthly basis. So I'm, I'm super excited to hear that you're excited about this product. Yeah. I tell you, you know, like I talk about this on the show a lot of times, sometimes when I hear something, when a guest comes on and talks about something very empowering and very, like I fe literally feel my heart swell. Like there's just those truth moments and it's just, you want to get on your roof and just scream it from the rooftops for everybody to hear like, oh, there's this amazing thing out there. Um, and this is one of those things because you're right. Like I just hear so many people, friends and, and family and heck, even strangers talking about their struggles and uh, to be able to offer something that's truly just such a such a gift to people's lives is wonderful. 
Yeah. When I first got into the business, I loved the flexibility of what I do, like the time work balance, you know, and that's why I try to share that with as many people as I can, you know, uh, working with new agents, trying to help them create this business for themselves. And I didn't know that a few years after I started this business that I would have this program to offer people where I can actually relieve them from, from their debt. I became debt-free, um, my wife and I, um, about four years ago. And I remember the feeling of just making that big payment towards my mortgage and just paying that off. And I couldn't even believe I was writing that size check. And uh, it, what a liberating feeling that is, you know, and you don't realize the, the, the strain that we're carrying when we're carrying that, that, you know, I owe somebody else for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And, and you know, you don't feel like you're ever going to get out of it. So people don't realize that there's an outlet for that, that we can help them with in, in many cases. Yeah. Well, just amazing. So yes, folks, if you're interested in learning more about the opportunity, uh, you can go to terrywellbrock.com and there's a, a tab um, that you can click on that will take you to that page that one, you can, can request a quote. And two, if you're interested in learning more about this as a career opportunity, and it can be part-time, full-time. Um, yeah, you can, there's, there'll be a box there as well. So awesome. So while I was in California, I started um, learning a little bit more about this thing called internet dating. And I was pretty gun shy at first. And I met some guy that really nice guy, really good looking guy. He lived really far away though. In fact, he lived in another country. He lived in Scotland. And he and I used to have these Skype conversations where he would sit down and eat I think it was dinner while I was having breakfast or the other way around. I don't remember anymore. Time changes confuse me now, <laughs> but we got to know each other, you know, over this seven year period, we were doing this all the time, really getting to know each other and spending some quality time together without actually being in the same room. Meanwhile, I was on alias and well and grace. I modeled for Harley Davidson. I did all these really cool things that he was constantly bragging to his family about. And he was really proud of me. And I got a job as a mall cop. And within a few months I had busted open a huge investment ring and took over as director of public safety and security. I had a real career in front of me. I had my first apartment ever without having roommates. I had a cat. I mean, at this point, I think I really am an adult. <laughs> So at 31 years old, I was 31 when he finally asked me. After seven years, I had gone over there to go and visit him. He had come to visit me, and we decided we were in love. So he asked me to get a fiancé visa and move to Scotland to go and be with him forever. We were going to get married. We already picked out the date and everything. It took him seven years to get me there, and it took him seven days to start trafficking me. Wow. Wow. It was within, within minutes of seeing him that he had my passport, my driver's license, my debit card. And he told me that it was for safekeeping. Literally, he was going to put it in a safe that fit underneath his bed. And the reason I believed him after everything that I had been through, the reason I believed him is because he knew more about his country than I did. And he knew more about safety within his country than I did. He was a police officer. The first week was beautiful. I got to go where I wanted as long as he was with me. I got to visit whoever I wanted as long as he was there and it was his family. Um, I, I had a blast. I got to explore old castle ruins and I got to go sit on the wall of Roman baths built in 149 AD. I, I mean, just it, this this incredible history. I was just submerged into it. And this was my life for that first week. But after that week, what became my life were just the walls of his home. And really the only telltale sign that anybody could have spotted would have been the number of people coming in and out of his home in the evenings. For a man that never had any kind of entertainment in his home, there were a lot of strangers that were coming by. They'd stay for an hour or two hours, depending on what their deal was. And then they would leave and the next person would show up. This was five, six, seven days a week. 
he had a daughter. So my only time off was when she was visiting every other weekend. It was, it was absolute torture. I tried to get out as quick as possible. Uh, I conned him into giving me back my driver's license, my debit card, my passport. And that was after one night of very intensive abuse. I had gotten him very drunk. I had kept his whiskey, gla whiskey glass very full. Towards the end of the night, I told him, I said, you know, I've got money in my bank. Wanting money, I could go and get the money out so we can spend it. Because otherwise, it's just going to sit there forever. So he fell for it. And he gave me back my stuff. And instead, I jumped on the computer the next morning and tried to get the first flight out that I could afford while he was at work as a police officer. The first flight out was over $12,000. And all I had was a little over 2000 to my name at the time. So the second day was still too expensive. Third day was still, still too expensive. The first flight out that I could afford would leave me with about $11 in my bank. And it was five days away. But I did one of the worst things to myself that we can do to ourselves or to anyone else as trauma survivors. And that was, I told myself, I've been through worse. I'll get through this too. We have to stop saying that to ourselves. We have to stop saying that to other people. Oh, you've been through worse. You'll get through it. That doesn't mean we want to get through it. Right. Because in reality, what I went through over the next five days was the worst thing I had ever experienced in my life. And I lied to myself. I've been through worse. I'd never been through this. As much as I'd been through, I'd never been through this. Within the five days, the abuse was so intense that I ended up with a kidney infection that nearly killed me. And I was in the hospital when that flight took off and it was Ugh. a non-refundable flight. I lost hope after that. I tried to take my own life. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to pray and to figure out how I'm going to get out of this. And there was one day that I sat in a very old churchyard and talked to a headstone for hours, praying that somebody would see me. And I sat on the steps of the church, hoping somebody would show up and praying somebody would see me. And every single time somebody went past, they ignored me. I could see them glance at me, but they had that, not my circus, not my monkeys attitude about them. I can tell she's upset. I'm not going to engage. And nobody actually could see me. They could tell that there was somebody there. They could see there was a woman sitting on the steps. But they had no idea how desperately I was wanting and needing their help. And I didn't know how to ask for it. He was a police officer. Who was I going to go to to ask for help? So eventually I made my way down to the train station. And my plan was I was going to wait until I could hear the train coming in the distance. And then follow the tracks up and step in front of the train. No. And while I, I was a smoker at the time, I had taken my cigarette with me, only one. It was going to be my last one. And while I was sitting there at the platform waiting, a man walked out and he asked me for a light and I gave him my matches and I told him, you know, you can keep them. I won't need them anymore. And he says, I, I won't either. But the whole reason that I told him I won't need them anymore is because I wanted him to ask me, why no. are you going to quit smoking? He didn't ask. He didn't care. I wasn't going to be able to make him care. But then his little boy, probably about four years old, walked out onto the platform and took his father's hand. And the little boy looked at me. And he didn't just look at me. He could see me. He could see the pain. You know, as adults, when we see a child who's concerned, we do what we can to cover up our own pain and anger. And we smile for them and we try to cheer them up. And Briefly did this little boy smile at me, but it dropped again. And he looked at me like he knew me. And it was very frightening and very real because at that point I was so damaged and so lost in the abuse that had been going on for months that I didn't even know myself anymore. And I knew that this little boy it was not a coincidence. He was the answer to prayers. <laughs> I always get emotional at this part. <laughs> he saw me not with the eyes of a child, but with the eyes of God. And he told me with nothing more than a look that I wasn't going to die there that day. 
and that I wasn't going to die there in Scotland at all, that I was going to get out. And my life did mean more than everything that I had been through. And I was going to move beyond this. And I finally, I put together a plan and I managed to con him into getting me out of Scotland and flying me back to California because he didn't want to marry trash like me, he said. (laughs) And I told him if I didn't leave, I could lose my visa and he could lose his job. And he fell for it. He was either going to send me back or he was going to murder me and bury me in the backyard. And he sent me back with a return ticket six months of the day afterward. I was supposed to go back to him. And things don't change just because you leave an abusive situation. He attacked me again and again. He took all kinds of photos and videos of me. He was sending them out to bosses, to friends, anybody and everybody. I lost jobs. I lost friendships. I lost respect. Eventually, I left California and I moved to Colorado, started over. And in 2019, I found out he made me famous on a pornography website. And that was when I hit rock bottom. That was 2019. That wasn't that long ago. I was recognized in a grocery store and asked for my autograph, not because I was on Alias or Will and Grace or all the other cool things that I had done when I was living in Hollywood, but because this man saw me being raped and I was crushed. And I reached out to an anti-trafficking organization and they immediately paired me up with one organization that helped to fight this stuff with pro bono legal services and another paired me up with a therapist. The first therapist, I traumatized her so bad she left the industry forever. But the second one was great. And I told her, I said, first of all, don't come at me with prescription medication. I'm not looking for a Band-Aid. I need a shovel. And second, don't treat me like I'm breakable because if I was going to break, I'd have done it already. That was the beginning of a hard road. A lot of talking, a lot of EMDR therapy. Yeah. And... In 2021, my autobiography was published, and a month later is when I met the man that's now my husband. Wow. Hauntingly captivating. And thank you for sharing. Uh, Wow. So, so powerful. I, too, did EMDR therapy. There was so much there that uh gosh we could have like seven episodes of the show (laughs) to talk about so much that that was there um i mean the little boy and yes uh, i you know all i kept thinking was oh he was an angel he he was he was an angel that was was put there for you um yeah wow well thank you for sharing your story absolutely yeah and a little guy was about four was 12 years ago he would be 16 now and i doubt he realizes that he saved somebody's life yeah yeah wow when one of the things you talked about though just really resonated with me the first time i was molested i was four or five i'm sorry alongside my my best friend uh my in kindergarten and it was by a 16 year old neighbor but I, I've written so many times about having the word stop screaming inside of me, but not being able to release it. And so when you talked about, you know, the word stop, um, it is, it's just, uh, it's, it has such a profound effect on your life because for the next, I don't know, 30 something years, I just couldn't get that word stop to come out. And the same patterns kept repeating, you know, molested again at nine, mol- repeatedly molested at 10, date raped at 16. I- again, very, very similar patterns, not the trafficking part. Um, but yeah, but then you get to the empowering part and wow. So now you work to share your story and uh, and help others along the journey. I have to ask, and I don't know if you know, did anything happen? Um to the police officer? I did report him uh, because I got a hold of some of the stuff that he was sending out with emails and stuff. In some of the photos, you could actually see his tattoos and he was identifiable. I reported him. I provided all of the information and filled in as many blanks as I could. But at the time, my brain was such Swiss cheese from the trauma 
that it was hard for me to piece things together. And I didn't know the people's names. They were asking specifically for people's names and dates of incidences and stuff. And I gave them everything I had. All I could remember was the nice lady's name was Caroline. And that wasn't enough for them to go on. So I still have a letter from them that they wrote to me that said that they saw no signs of abuse and the case was dismissed. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, you made the effort. and I did. Yeah. But, you know, I, I figured with all these people, he had included all of my social media information um, and the, the pornography stuff that he was putting up. And people kept on flocking to my social media pages. And a lot of them were very lewd comments, very nasty things that they were saying or requesting in some cases. And I figured if people were going to find me, if they were going to keep finding me, no matter what I did, that they needed to understand the truth. So I will never have legal justice. Um, that'll never happen for me. But I will have my custom justice. Because I wrote my autobiography and I learned how to stand up and I speak about this stuff. And the louder I get about it, the more he gets frightened of me and he gets very quiet. Oh, I love it. I mean, that's the empowerment part, right? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. If it's we finding, own our own stories. Yeah. Yeah. Finding your voice. Oh my gosh. That was to me, I, I did EMDR as well um, for years and then took a little break and then went back for, for a year or two. Um, but yes. Oh my goodness gracious. Finding that voice. Yes. And being able to share that story is just incredibly empowering. Yeah. And we have to own our own stories. Yeah. We are digging ourselves out of a hole that somebody else threw us in. It's okay to own that story. Yeah. We might have made some, some mistakes along the way, but there's nothing that we can't come back from. We are still here and there's a reason for it. It's okay to speak up about this stuff because somebody else is going through it right now. And your story is going to be the reason they fight to get out. Yes. Well, I mean, that's what I, I just find so incredible about you specifically, your story is that you're standing there and saying, could I have done things like differently according to some script, like you said, in a Hollywood script that says, oh, shoulda, woulda, coulda done this. You, you're like, this is how it went down. And this is how, how it happened. And so you're talking about staying in situations where people were like, why didn't you leave? Why couldn't she? She could have gotten away. She could have. would." No, when you're in that, we understand now the impact of trauma and there's flight, fight, fawn, which so often happens when it comes to sexual abuse. You're basically befriending or trying anything you can to try to survive in the moment um, and freezing. So, yeah. And my friends and I have added one to that. Um, my survivor's uh, friends, it's the please fight, fight, flight, fawn, freeze, or please. Or when please. you are a victim of human trafficking, you learn to please the people that are around you, because if you don't, the ramifications are awful. I lived through sleep deprivation uh, waterboarding for sport, um, food deprivation. I, I'm a survivor of something known as sport torture. They torture people because they think it's fun or funny. So if you learn to please those people around you, that kind of stuff happens less often. I, I, I just, it baffles. I, I don't understand why, why certain humans are so cruel. I just can't even wrap my head around it. It just, it, my sister and I, well, and my other survivor friends have talked about it so often. Like, it's just so hard for us to grasp. Uh, yeah, just the cruelty portion of it. Yeah. But as cruel as some people are, there are so many other people out there that are the exact opposite. You know, my husband's a great example of that. He is. I tell people all the time that he is one of the most patient people I've ever met in my entire life. And he's told me that I am the only person that's ever accused him of being patient. Um, 
but he's kind and gentle and thoughtful and understanding and just he's everything that I could have possibly needed in my life. He is the opposite of every other person that's ever hurt me. Absolute polar opposite of all of them. It took a little while to understand that this is actually real. He is real. This is not some mask that he's wearing. This is a real guy. But it's so cool. And then there's people like you elevating these voices of survivors and you're giving us a place to speak and to be heard. And that's so needed in the world. You are also the polar opposite of the cruelty. Oh, we need more people like you. Oh, thank you. And I, I say the same about you to be able to share just the horrors that you experience, but then get to the positive parts of it and, and, and your, your thriving part of your story, which is just such a gift to put out there into the world. Thank you. Um, so speaking of the, the thriving part of it, how, how do folks, can they get your book at Amazon? Can they find it in bookstores? How do they connect? They can get the Kindle version on Amazon, but Amazon for whatever reason is having a really hard time uh, getting my paperbacks. So the easiest way to find the paperback copy is through Barnes and Noble. Um, if you go to my website, there's a whole list of different places you can find it, including purchasing it directly from me if you want an autographed version. Uh, and that website is just growthfromdarkness.com because that's what we do. We grow from darkness. Yes. Yeah. I had somebody on recently that talked about that. And when we're in that dark, rich, fertile soil, um, you know, if we continue to just allow ourselves that all of a sudden we're going to burst forth into the light. And I just loved that visual. It was awesome. Yeah. So now I certainly, gosh, we could sit here and talk for hours on end, I'm sure. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak about anything that uh, we haven't had a t chance to touch upon yet. I just want to give a little hope to people out there, you know, Everybody goes through stuff. For one thing, trauma is not a competition. It's not a destination. We don't get trophies. We get to keep living. That's the only prize there is. We've also grown up our entire lives constantly hearing this phrase, and it's been this way for two centuries. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. This was an aphorism coined in the 1800s by a, name, by a man by the name of Frederick Nietzsche. He died in an insane asylum. It's okay, we can let that one go now. <laughs> the truth is not that our abuse and our traumas and our abusers made us stronger. Stop giving them credit. What makes us stronger is, number one, God. And number two, we've had this strength within us our whole lives. We got to stop looking for the Band-Aids and we got to start digging out the shovels. This is the only way we're really going to get through this. And it's not a weakness ask for help. It is actually a strength and that's why it's so hard to do. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah to all of that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, oh, one of the things that, that you talked about was not wanting the medications. Um, yeah, I had had something arise in the last couple of years where I got very, very, very ill. Um, physically i'd been through so much trauma and then was on the healing path and then very very ill um and sitting in front of a doctor and i was my whole body had gone awry 20 different things were wrong with me and i was had tears in my eyes and the doctor said well the first thing we're going to do is put you on an anti-anxiety med and i was like hold up like nope <laughs> one you don't know my history and all that i have overcome without I mean, early on, I was on antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds, but then got to the point where I understood getting to the root cause, right? And, and doing the healing work. And so, yeah, so needless to say, she got a little bit of a lesson <laughs> on um, it's okay to feel these emotions and have tears in your eyes and to be naturally concerned about your health without thinking, oh my gosh, well, this person must have an anxiety disorder because they've got a couple of tears in their eyes. So yeah, yeah, I'm right there with you on that one and saying, hell yeah. There are four different classified versions of panic disorders right now. We have none of those. <laughs> right. 
It's yeah, just just because you have some natural human emotions does not mean that you need to be put on anti-anxiety meds. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, um, again, how do how do folks connect with you through your website? Uh, through the website growthfromdarkness.com or they can find me on Facebook where I'm far more active than I probably should be. And I would have more than uh, just the 13 books that I currently have if I stayed off of it a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, reach out to me there because <laughs> I'll answer. <laughs> awesome. Yes, I'm I'm the same way. Like I, I don't do, I tried TikTok for a little while and my kids made fun of me because of Instagram. And so I'm just that Facebook lady. Yeah, I'll go yeah. to my Facebook. <laughs> I have TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. And I try to be active on them, but Facebook is the place for me. That's yeah. that's my home. Uh, no, I love it. Me too. <laughs> all right. Well, it's just been such a blessing to have you here. And thank you for, thank you for sharing your truth and um, for the amazing work you do. Thank you so much, Terry. Awesome. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us today on the Healing Place podcast. Remember until next time, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody, Terry Welbrock here. Just wanted to thank you again for being a part of this healing space and my hashtag hope for healing journey. Thank you for sharing, liking, inviting others to join, listening in. Uh, you've really helped this show blossom. It has now been downloaded in 136 countries and is in the top 2% globally out of 3.2 million shows, which is just amazing. And it's all because of you and your tuning in and inviting others and sharing and liking and loving. And your reviews on Apple really help too. My goal is to hit 100 five-star reviews uh, by the end of the year. And I am closing in on that. So if you are listening in on Apple, or Apple Podcasts, please go and rate the show and leave a review if you absolutely love it. And uh, I would be most appreciative. Also, if you would like to receive my monthly Hope for Healing newsletter, please be sure to go to terrywellbrock.com. It's T-E-R-I, just one R, W-E-L-L-B-R-O-C-K.com. And I have a, uh, a gift to send you for signing up for that monthly Hope for Healing newsletter. Plus, there are many other resources listed on that page, including a resource library. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye.